0: We'll take your Bibles and turn to the book of James. We are continuing in our study of James this morning, and our text is James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And Lord, we ask for your blessing on our time this morning. Of thinking through these words, which are from you, given by you to your people. Humble our hearts and help us to receive them and to respond accordingly. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, let's follow James' line of reasoning here. How do we get to verse 12? We know that his overall purpose for writing is to warn against and confront divisions in our hearts. Spiritual fractures, I've called them. These are divisions within our hearts that cause us to live in duplicitous ways. There is in each of us a lack of integrity, a lack of wholeness. We are not complete. Our faiths, Your faith, my faith, our faiths are not yet perfected or made whole. James wants us to be complete. He wants us to be whole without these fractures, without these divisions. Now in verses 2, 3, and 4, he tells us that we should count trials as joy because their effect is to produce endurance. And what do we need to gain this endurance, to have this endurance? This steadfastness is the word that our English standard versions use. This steadfastness has the goal of making us perfect. And to get that steadfastness or that endurance to navigate trials... To withstand them, we need wisdom. This is what we find in verses five through eight. We need wisdom. Wisdom is the key to understanding how trials are working in my life and how trials are working in your life because not all of us are going through the same trials or the same severity of trials, though all of us and each of us is facing various kinds of trials. For you to navigate those trials, to endure them, requires wisdom. So how do we then obtain wisdom? Well, James tells us to ask God and to ask in faith because God is trustworthy But to ask God and then doubt God's willingness to sit in judgment on God's motives or his purity or his trustworthiness, his honesty in promising to give us wisdom is double-minded, 2 souled We looked at that word and found that it means having a, a fracture in the soul. Almost like we would use the phrase double faced, two faced, saying one thing to one person at one time, but saying something else totally different to another person at another time. This is to be double minded, it's a person fractured in soul. He then goes on and explains that this exhortation to ask God to trust him to provide wisdom is intended for everyone, both the lowly and the rich. Both suffer trials. Both need wisdom. Both are to ask. And both can expect God to be faithful. So when we get to verse 12 then, certain words stand out, don't they? Steadfast. Trial. test. Well, these are all words that are repeated from verses 2 and 3. So you see, James is connecting these thoughts together. It's how we know that James isn't just bouncing from one subject to another. He is still focused on remaining steadfast under trial. Back in verse 4, we are to count it all joy. Because the goal of enduring trials is to be made perfect. This is a process that is being done to us. Here in verse 12, we are pronounced as blessed or blessed. Because when we have endured, when we have remained steadfast, there will be reward. There will be reward. To be blessed is not to just feel the experience of happiness. The word can mean happy, but that's not really what James is getting at. It's not just an experience of happiness, but it is a status It means to be the recipient of God's favor and therefore have every cause for joy, have every cause for happiness, to be fulfilled, to be satisfied. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. So I want you then to bank on two facts that are revealed in these verses, I want you to bank on two facts that are revealed in these verses so that you will receive the reward that God promises, that you will know God's favor. These two truths, these two facts, assure us that our endurance will lead to reward without fail. They will give you strength in the midst of all kinds of trials, they will make us steadfast. First of all, you can bank on the fact that God has promised life. God has promised life. I want to start then with the magnitude or the greatness of the reward that James says is promised to us. What's the reward? The crown of life. He will receive the crown of life. I don't know what you think of when you think of a crown. You might think of gold, jewels, purple velvet. But what James has in mind is a wreath. It was a wreath that would have been awarded to a victorious athlete. Like a gold medal in the Olympic Games... In ancient Rome, Greece, and Rome, they had the Olympic Games. That's where they originated, and the victor would be crowned with a wreath by placing a wreath on his head. Just as in our Olympic Games, we have the medal ceremony, and of course, whoever's on the top platform, their national anthem is played. In the ancient world, that victor, that person who today would receive a gold medal, received a wreath. Paul uses this same imagery in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 and 25, when he writes, "'Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize?' So run that you may obtain it. So we have gold, silver, and bronze. Now, I don't know everything about the ancient Olympic Games, but there would seem to have been only the gold medal, maybe. There was only one prize. And Paul describes in verse 25, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. That word wreath is the same word that James uses that is translated crown in verse 12. They do it to receive a wreath, a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. So this crown of life then, this wreath, has to do with victory, Not royal status, not authority, but victory. The crown of life means that the promised reward, that which is placed upon the victor's head, the one who wins the race, is life. It is a crown which is life. And that is eternal life. Eternal life. Paul used the same word in 1 Corinthians 9, right? Imperishable. It's an imperishable crown. It's because the crown of life is eternal life. In fact, Jesus uses this same phrase in Revelation chapter 2 when speaking to the church of Sardis. And it's the only other place in the Bible where the actual phrase crown of life is used. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This second death is being thrown into the lake of fire, into hell, after the final judgment. Later on in the book of Revelation, that description will be given. It is the opposite of the crown of life. So what Jesus is saying here to this church is stay faithful. You're about to suffer. You're about to undergo great trials, but be faithful unto death, even to the point of physically dying because you name my name And I will give you the crown of life. So your death in this life is a passing thing. It is a momentary thing. But the crown of life is eternal. It is the opposite of the second death, which is eternal destruction. Eternal condemnation. Eternal suffering. James then is looking at the end. He's really looking at the culmination of remaining steadfast under trial, holding up, not abandoning your faith, but instead standing the test. And remember, we talked about this word test back in verses 3 and 4. This test has to do with not trying to make us fail, but a test of refinement, It is the crucible, like a precious metal being heated up and the dross, the imperfections being brought to the surface and scraped off. It is the culmination of standing the test. This crucible of trial creates in your life and mine God's work of refining our faith. The one whose faith then is made whole, is made perfect, will receive the crown of life. This is the reward that God has promised to those who, what? Love him. So, remaining steadfast, standing the test, and loving God are really all the same thing. They're all talking about the same thing. To love God is not feeling sentimental about God. I grew up in Christian camping and spent some time there in ministry, and it was always a tension for me to watch campers, students who came there for the week of Bible camp, to really get emotional. And that's not to say that we should not respond with emotion to the gospel. If Jesus convicts your heart and draws you to himself, that ought to be emotional, not some cold calculated thing. But writing the emotion itself without the substance is also a dangerous thing. And there were many times I watched emotional responses that were claimed to be loving God that were not of substance. Loving God is not just a sentiment about God, it is allegiance to Him. It is fealty, to use an old word, faithfulness, a faithful loyalty. Remaining steadfast under trial is faithful love for God. Jesus said something similar in John chapter 14, verse 15, when he told his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Loving Jesus wasn't just saying, Lord, I love you this morning. Loving Jesus means, Lord, you have my entire heart. I belong to you. And I will not waver. I will remain steadfast. Now, maybe you're wondering, what's the connection between loving God and remaining steadfast under trial? Well, the next verses explain this. God has promised life. And secondly, God has promised with integrity. God has promised With integrity. This is the second fact, the second truth that you can bank on. First, God has promised life. And second, God has promised with integrity. He has made this promise with integrity to those who love Him. Will God keep His promise? Now, if you were answering a a question on a test, you would probably check yes. Does God truly desire that we receive this life he has promised? That gets a little harder when you start thinking about the difficulties of life, the trials. Hmm. Is God really on my side in this? Are these things really purposeful for my good? Has he brought these trials into our lives for our good? Verse thirteen. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Whoa, okay. So why does James suddenly start talking about temptation? What's the connection between temptation? and remaining steadfast under trial. Well, the secret sauce is that this word tempted and tempts is the same word as trial turned into a verb. So back in verses two through four, and here again in verse 12, where you see the word trial and trials, that's a noun or plural noun, And when you see this verb tempted here five times, tempted, 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 tempts, and then again in verse 14, tempted, it is that same word turned into a verb. The word itself has a range of meaning, and depending on the context determines how it's going to be translated in an English Bible. But it reflects accurately, to use the word tempted, because of the relationship between a trial and a temptation. The word itself contains this double meaning. And the reason why is that because every trial you face is in essence a temptation And you really could say the reverse. Every temptation you face to sin is a trial under which you must remain steadfast. So when James says, let no one say when he is tempted, he is saying that when this trial comes, it will bring with it a temptation you could say very broadly to not trust god a temptation to fail to obey him or disobey him the external trial always forms a temptation now let me just give you an example of this now i don't have these i don't have this passage in the slides but genesis chapter 22 genesis chapter 22 is a very well-known story. You might not recognize the chapter, but you'll recognize the story probably. It is the story of when God commands Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. James will actually use this very incident in chapter 2 when he's talking about faith, real faith. In Genesis chapter 2, we find verse 1, this This statement, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Of course, the rest of the story is that Abraham obeys God. Abraham takes Isaac. He doesn't tell him what's going on, but he takes him to Moriah. He takes them up the mountain. He even gathers all the wood and builds an altar. And Isaac even asks him, Father, where's the ram? Where's the sacrifice? Abraham says, God will provide the ram. But then he takes Isaac and he binds him and he lays him on the altar. And it, of course, is when Abraham's knife is in midair that the angel of the Lord, God himself, calls down and says, stop. Don't do it. Now I know, and this is verse 12. Uh, Verses 11 and 12, Genesis 22, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now, like I said, chapter two, James is gonna point to this and say, this is the kind of faith that saves but here this word back in verse 1 of Genesis 22 after these things god tested abraham is the old testament hebrew equivalent to this word trial or tempted you could they could have translated this verse and these thing and after these things god brought this trial of temptation. Because in bringing this trial to Abraham, Abraham is being tempted to what? Not obey God. To put his own hopes in having a son. In fact, his own confidence in God's promise to give him descendants that would outnumber the sands of the seas and the stars of the heavens All of that hope was founded in Isaac. But Abraham stands the test. He passes the test. That's just an example of how every trial brings temptation. Now, if you consider the trials in your life, Again, if you were to take a piece of paper and you were to jot them out, this is what I'm facing, this is what I'm going through, you would see how you are being tempted in the very trial to not remain faithful to God in some way. Another great example, and I won't turn there, is Jesus' temptations in Luke chapter 4, also found in Matthew chapter 4. He goes through a trial of 40 days of fasting and then is tempted by the devil three times. Every time is a temptation to forsake his faithfulness, his reliance upon the Father. You are going through that too. So... When you and I are confronted with a trial, there is the temptation to not trust God, to not obey God. And James is telling us not to blame God for that. I am being tempted by God. James says, let no one say that because every one of us is susceptible to this response to the trial. This trial is causing me to sin. Ever thought that? If the trial was just taken away, I could be obedient or I could trust God. This is often the kind of wheeling and dealing that we do, isn't it? Lord, if you'll remove this trial, I'll trust you. I'll follow you. James is saying, God is not culpable for our susceptibility to not be steadfast under trial. number one because of where temptation originates verse 13 God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. This would be if God if God Can't be tempted by evil, but he were to tempt us, it would be a division, a fracture within God's person. It would mean that God is double minded. But because he cannot be tempted with evil, there is a wholeness an integrity, and integrity in God's dealing or bringing trials into your life. He tempts no one. When God brings a trial, his design is never to make you fail or cause you to fail, As though God would promise you the crown of life for remaining steadfast and then do everything he can in an underhanded way to make it impossible for you to remain steadfast. Ah, when we think that God deals with us that way, it is because we are that way. We are that way. So James points out where temptation originates. Then he explains how temptation operates. So it originates where? With us. And it operates how? Verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The first description is taken from fishing. Lured, literally pulled away or dragged away, and then enticed by his own desire. Baited. This, this word enticed could even be translated bait, to bait something or someone baited by his own desire the second image here then uses birth from conception to death and when james says it brings forth death he's talking about the ultimate the ultimate effect that sin has that temptation has and that is eternal death. Again, because James is not talking about every time you undergo a trial, you get a crown of life and another crown of life and another crown of life. James is looking at the end. This death is final judgment. So James has the big picture in mind here. And this death, you will notice, is the opposite of what? eternal life, the crown of life. So temptation takes you the other way. So would there be integrity in God if he promises you the crown of life, but his real design in the trial was to undermine your steadfastness, undermine the purification of your faith to tempt you, to cause you to sin, to actually bring about Death. So listen, on the one hand, James is explaining here where temptation comes from, where it originates, and then how temptation operates, how it works. But his point is not really to somehow prepare us for resisting temptation per se. His point is to warn us That this response to trials, that this response to God, to blame him for the trials causing us to sin, is double-minded. This is how a fractured person thinks of trials and thinks of God's motivations in bringing those trials into our lives. Does that sound absurd? I can tell you a number, I could relate a number, more than one conversation that I have had with people within the last year where someone has said to me, more than one person, has said to me, I want to change, but God is not helping me. I want to leave this sinful habit, this destructive way of life, this pattern, but God won't help me. I've even asked him, and he won't change me. That is a soul-fractured, double-minded way of thinking because you see, Because we are double-minded, we project onto God, we see God through that fracture, and we see him the same way. Now, does this argument sound familiar? It should, because it's the same point that James makes back in verses 5 through 8. Look in your Bibles back at verses 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously or, as we talked about, singly, sincerely, to all without reproach. And it will be given him. Let him ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James is making the exact same argument. He is saying, blessed are you. You are the recipient of God's favor when you Remain steadfast when it comes that day and you've remained steadfast under trial, everything that counts as a trial in your life. Because you will receive the crown of life, you will receive eternal life that God has promised to those who love Him, who remain faithful to Him. Let no one say when he is tempted. When your desire kicks in, drags you away, and entices you, let no one say, this is God's fault. God said he would give me the crown of life, but God's making it impossible for me to do this. It's the same as saying, God has told me to ask him for wisdom, but I don't know. I'm not sure that God's really on my side or that he'll... Do what he has said he will do in providing me wisdom to understand and navigate and respond rightly to this trial. It's the same argument, you see. And if you want a little bit of a preview, in the next three verses, verses 16 through 18, James is going to take this reality about the character of God, which he is... Appeal to twice now as the reason why we can expect to get wisdom if we ask for it in faith. And why we can count on, be assured of the crown of life if we remain steadfast under trial. Both times he has pointed to what? The integrity of the character of God. And in verses 16 through 18 he's going to say this is what that character looks like. So James here is warning us against this double-mindedness, against this division. But he's also assuring us. His real goal, I think, is to assure us. Don't say that. Don't take that approach. How can that be true? That's absurd to think that God's design in that Hardship in that trial is really to trip you up and cause you to sin against him, which would actually bring about death, which is the opposite of the crown of life. That's absurd. And that is really James' point. Be assured. No, and that's why I say bank on these two things. When you think about those trials... And your response to them, whether or not you honor God in responding to them, or you don't trust him and honor him in response to them, bank on these two facts. God has promised life, eternal life. And God has promised with integrity. If we blame God for the temptation that is embedded in the trial, it reveals the cracks in our own character, not in God's. The very fractures that God is working to remove, to make whole. And so, Lord, we ask you this morning that you would give us wisdom, and we trust you to do so. I pray that you would take this text and that you would work it into the hearts of your people so that they may remain faithful, so that they may know with assurance that they will receive the crown of life that you have promised and that you are not dealing with us in some underhanded way. Oh no! We praise you and we honor you today for being the true God who is faithful. Lord, we thank you for this, the blessing that it is to come together, to gather and to worship and to hear the word preached. Lord, be pleased now as we come to your table to take this bread and to take this cup in remembrance of your sacrifice for us and your great love for us, amen.